In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. Zebras are God's way of laughing at race. Scrapple is a nonsensical fool. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. Climb on my ass and scale the Grand Canyon. Anything goes at Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Let's see. Healing Crystal Retreat. Love Your Dolphin Daytime Swim. Tofu Wow Luau. Ooh! A stage reading of Communion, the movie, as read by Zachariah Sitchin and Angelia Joyner. It's, it's tonight's dinner theater, Jeff! So many options! Yeah, great. What do you want to do? Call home, sadly. You must get homesick, right? What with the wife and the son? Must be nice coming home to all that warmth and love every night. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, that's why I came here with you instead of them. Wait a sec, Jeff. Is that Dr. Greg Matloff, the leading expert in possibilities for interstellar propulsion and a tenured astronomy professor with the physics department of New York City College of Technology, who consults with NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, is a Hayden associate of the American Museum of Natural History and a corresponding member of the International Academy of Astronautics, as well as co-author of Living Off the Land in Space with Les Johnson of NASA and C. Bangs, and also author of Deep Space Probes, as well as Telescope Power, More Telescope Power, The Urban Astronomer, The Starflight Handbook, which he co-authored with Eugene Matloff? Yeah, I don't know what you just said. Sure you do! That's Dr. Matloff! The dude's papers on interstellar travel, a search for extraterrestrial ar- artifacts, and methods of protecting Earth from asteroid impacts have been published in JBIS, Acta Astronautica, Spaceflight, Journal for Astronautical Sciences, and Mercury. His popular articles have appeared in many publications, including Analog. In 1998, he won a $5,000 prize in the International Essay Contest on ETI, sponsored by the National Institute for Discovery Sciences. Ring a bell? Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, let's go say hi. Hey, Greg! Uh, Dr. Greg. Remember me? You spoke at my Culture of Contact event last October. Ah, Jeremy Vaney and Jeffrey Ritzman. Grandastic to see you. Won't you join us for a drink? It is on the house. I'm not thirsty, but, um... Free drinks appeal to my food addiction. The one I've used to hide my pain since my parents divorced back in third grade. They weren't in third grade, I was. I was thin then. I'm a go-getter. Yeah, I don't have a pathetic backstory. I just like those little umbrella things. Chair. <coughs> Chair, wake up. Wake up. Oh, Jeff! <coughs> <laughs> oh, Jeff, I just spit out my gum. Wow. Well, that was unspectacular. What'd you think? I was choking on a pussy cat or something? <laughs> what a gem that was, huh? It just came to me, yeah. Yeah, great. Hey, Chair, <laughs> where where are we? I guess we're still going with this. We're in Paratopia talking about the love of family and planning our vacation without them. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know all that, but where are we? 
looks like a podcast booth. Yeah, and I feel like we've been here before. Like, in another life? Like we were trapped here. Yeah, vaguely. Vaguely remember us talking about something, like... Like we were here talking about doing a podcast or something where we'd interview people outside the field. That yeah, up? and I always said I wanted to talk to a physicist. Right, yeah, and I said I always wanted to talk to someone from NASA, remember? No. Thanks. At New York City College of Technology. Holy crap! Jeff, that's Greg Matloff, the leading expert in possibilities for interstellar propulsion and a tenured astronomy professor with the Physics Department of New York City College of Technology who consults with NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, is a Hayden Associate of the American Museum of Natural History and a corresponding member of the International Academy of Astronautics, as well as the author of Living Off the Land in Space with Les Johnson of NASA and C. Bangs, and also the author of Deep Space Probes, as well as Telescope Power, more Telescope Power, The Urban Astronomer, The Starflight Handbook, which he co-authored with Eugene Malov. Malov? Malov? I don't know what you just said. Just put your headphones on, dude. You know, this feels suspiciously like we're doing a freaking podcast. Just wait till I dominate the conversation. Then it'll really feel like old times back home. <laughs> Are you kidding? It feels like that now. Don't be assy. Dr. Matloff, hey! How goes the, um, space sail, or whatever? The solar sail is essentially, um, okay, work, work, like, work it like this. The solar sail works by radiation pressure. What this means is sunlight and all other types of light, although it doesn't have a mass, can push you. So if you're exposed to a lot of light, to an intense enough light source, and if you have a large enough area, a high enough reflectivity, uh, a low enough mass, you can get pushed to a fairly high speed. And the trick with solar sailing is to do all of this, to put all of these different aspects together. The experimental solar sails today are a couple of microns thick, and a micron is a, is a millionth of a meter. And typically, what they have is three layers. The front layer, an aluminum layer, faces the sun. This is the reflective layer. This is on a plastic substrate, sometimes Kapton, or sometimes other types of plastic. In back of this is a chromium layer, and with the chromium, it's usually chromium, not always. The purpose of this is to emit the small, the, the small fraction of light which is absorbed by the aluminum. And that today is what we're doing, what people are experimenting with. There have been a couple of solar sail tests in space. One of these on, um, was the unfurlment of the Namia by the Russians from Mir Space Station in 1993. This was a test sail. And the Japanese have successfully tested more advanced sails more recently from a sounding rocket. There have been two failures, but these are not due to the problems of the solar sail is due to problems of the launch vehicle. One of these was by the Planetary Society, and which is a private group. The other was by NASA. And these were both test sails which failed to reach orbit due to launch uh, rocket problems. Now, if we're going to go to a star today with a current technology sail, it's going to take a long time. Why? Because something a couple of microns thick is still fairly thick from the point of view of what we could ultimately do. Also, 
we're limited in terms of the materials we have today. We can get maybe somewhat closer to the sun than Mercury is, safely. And the trick is you want to get as closely as you can. <clears throat> so if you get as close as you can, which is maybe a third again closer to the sun from Mercury, and then you open your sail, it can blow your probe out of the solar system at something like 50 to 100 kilometers per second, which sounds like a very large velocity, but it will take you something like 7,000 years to get to the nearest star. We would like to cut that down by a factor of 5 to 10 at least. And in order to do that, what we have to do is learn how to manufacture much thinner sails measured in tens of nanometers. A nanometer is one billionth of a meter. Uh, made of monolayer metallic substances. Right now, beryllium seems to be the best. Aluminum is pretty good also. And we would have to do this in space. We need a space-based infrastructure. In, and also, something like this could probably get somewhat closer to the sun by a factor of three or four. Figure about one one-sixteenth the distance of the Earth to the sun is probably pretty safe. In a case like this, it'll take you something between one and two thousand years to get to the nearest star. The solar sail could be used. You could furl it. You could sort of tie it with its cables, which would be probably super strong, diamond strength, silicon carbide strength, something like that. Uh, and the cable itself around the payload to give you cosmic ray shielding in deep space. And when you get to the nearest star, which is a sun, actually two sun-like stars, you could unfurl the sail again and decelerate. You could use it in reverse. And it's the only interstellar propulsion system which serves all three functions. That's one of its great advantages. Um, Okay. Is, this something, that, is this something that you invented, or you and oh, a, no. a, a no. I did I did not invent this. The solar sail is a very old concept. It probably solar radiation pressure goes back to Johannes Kepler in about the year 1600. He's a German astronomer, actually uh, one of the people who leads directly into Newton's laws. Kepler noticed that the tails of comets always point away from the sun. So he knew that something was pushing it. He didn't know what. Uh, in the 19th century, the early theoretical work on electromagnetic waves by James Clerk Maxwell led very much to the um, theoretical basis for this. It was finally quantified by Einstein in 1905, measured actually, although it had been measured by Lee, Lebedev, Peter, I believe Lebedev in Russia a few years before that, the early theories of applying it in space travel were by uh, Zilokovsky in, in Russia and in the Soviet Union, and F.H. Sandler also in Russia in the 1930s. I got involved in this in the 1970s, basically looking at different modes of interstellar transportation. And I decided to try something a little bit different. Everybody else was looking at, the, at various nuclear approaches. And it was suggested to me that I should investigate the sale. And I did that. And I was really surprised with what I found. So basically, my contribution is working out the formalism for the 
the Assam trajectories for uh, I'm working a bit on the material science, working on the interaction between the sale and the um, uh, interplanetary medium. I do have a recent book out on solar sails. The authors are Giovanni Volpetti in Italy, uh, Les Johnson, who's a NASA manager who's worked with the NASA sail projects and myself. It is called Solar Sails, a novel approach to interplanetary travel. It was published last year by Springer. Is this something that NASA is going to uh, put into effect? Well, okay, I can't, we can't really predict what NASA is going to do or when they're going to do it. NASA has studied this for some time. Uh, NASA has studied programs. They have worked on unfurling sails up to 20 meters across in test chambers on the ground. They did launch a test sail, which was maybe 10 feet across, something called Nano Sail D, on the third launch of the Falcon 1 rocket, which unfortunately failed because of the rocket, not because of the sail. NASA does have a backup to this one, and I presume at some point they will do this test sail again. The Planetary Society hopes to, to repeat the Cosmos 1 experiment. They call this Cosmos 2. And they might actually try to get beyond Earth orbit, maybe to one of the Earth-Moon Lagrange points, which would be very nice because they would demonstrate that they could steer with radiation pressure in space, as well as getting propulsion. So what do you ultimately want to see this do? If you, know, if you had your wish come true, what would it be? Okay, I can see many applications to it. What I would like to see in my lifetime, in terms of interstellar travel, is a probe out to a few hundred astronomical units. The one astronomical unit is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Uh, ultimately, it would be nice with space-developed solar sails, maybe even laser-pushed sails, to propel a small payload out to the nearest star. Maybe if it's, if it's small enough and we have a laser to push it as well as the Sun, we could do it in a couple of centuries, maybe even less. Uh, that would be a good possibility. I don't know if we're going to see starships with people in the near future. We, you know, if you ask me about, we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, now, in terms of near-term applications, I think one of the most exciting applications of the solar sail is we could use it in a number of modes to uh, divert Earth-threatening asteroids. If there's a near-Earth asteroid, an object which maybe can usually approach the Earth within a few million miles, and it happens to be moving directly towards us, if we have enough warning time, uh, there are a couple of solar sail approaches to moving it. Hmm. <clears throat> now, this is interesting to me because you also spoke at the conference um, about some of your own, I don't even know what to call them, contact experiences? Okay, my own contact experience, personal one, I don't know if it's a contact experience. I, I would, but it might be in the same category of contact experiences. I know people, including respected scientists who've had contact experiences, they don't like to talk to that, talk about them because they're afraid of ridicule because it is very easy for somebody to say, well, you were deluded and just walk away. When I was 14 years old riding on a bicycle, uh, in Queens, New York, I heard a voice, a woman's voice, yelling my name, Greg. 
And I later assumed it was my mother, but I have no proof of that. She was a good distance away. I fell off the bike, looked around. There was nobody near me. And I got up, and this affected me. And to a certain extent, I think it made me a little more introverted, a little shyer, a little more bookish. And because of that, perhaps I studied harder and was sort of marked to do different things than than many of my peers. When I listen to some of the contact stories, they really affect people in a big way. The problem is you can't prove what they are. And one of the possibilities, of course, is that, yeah, there are space aliens around. Another possibility is that everybody, including myself, is simply deluded. So it's a, from a scientific point of view, it's a frustrating field to study but also it's very fascinating because it points to something we really don't understand. Well, what does it do for you as a scientist uh, believing that? If if you believe that that was a contact experience, then anything that you're working on in terms of space, does it feel like, like do you constantly feel like just an ape with fire or do you feel like you're getting somewhere or, or how does that aspect well, work? Well, I feel that very definitely I am getting somewhere with space. Uh but well, how the research I do, and now people in my department, Department of Physics at New York City College of Technology are getting involved in it too, are doing how, how the physics of the solar sail relates to contact experiences, I don't know. All I can say in my particular case, this was a very significant event, and it directed me. But I can't say what it was. I can list lots of possibilities. One of the, as I listed at the at the culture of contact talk, mm-hmm. one of them, of course, is I was being programmed by space aliens. I could also say that it was deity, it was God or goddess talking to me. That makes, you know, it, both of these are equally possible. Then perhaps there was somebody in a time machine coming back from the distant future and doing an experiment to see what I would do. And maybe my mother had become telepathic. Maybe I was receiving communication from the dead. You know, we could keep on listing these things. <laughs> Each of them is a hypothesis. And we could also say that at the age of 14, my um, hormones were starting to kick in, so maybe I was deluded. Any one of these is equally possible. And I can't, nobody can come out and prove them. All you can do these things to say that whoever is having a contact experience, it is a real experience for that person. And all it was was just saying your name? That was It was my name. Huh. Greg. Okay, so... Or, and I, later on I said, Greg, you will do exactly what I say, but I may have added that later on. It was <laughs> my name, Greg. That was the important thing. Um, now, you, you mentioned other scientists, and of course you won't name names. Okay, so. I won't name, name names. I know two people involved in Michio space. Michio Kaku, say it. Michio Kaku, say it. Right, I will say what, the, I'll say what, their, <laughs> what their experiences were. If I, because if I told you their names, they would probably kill me. Right. Uh, this was told, their names were in confidence, but I can tell you what they, what they did. One of these people is driving out west in the western part of the United States, and he is with a lady friend, and they experience um, basically a strange lighting effect. And his, what he told me is he was quite sure something that he that was not of military origin, nothing that he could explain, 
had landed there, and he got away as quickly as he could. The other person, and I, and I believe this, I forget if it was California or South America where he experienced this, was basically strange lights in, uh, I believe, a forest. And, you know, these are sincere people, hardworking people. They're people who've contributed to the field, their fields of research, and they're respected people, and yet they had experiences that they cannot explain. So how do you guys go on doing, you know, or at least you, I don't know what them, but, you know, working at NASA as if everything is okay and we're on this upward trajectory when, you know, towards some sort of contact with perhaps microbes on Mars or something when, when you're being contacted by something right now? Well, okay, first of all, we don't know what the contact is. We don't know. It's certainly not a... Uh, it's, it's not a continuous type thing. We can't, whatever is happening, we can't study it at this time. Whatever, you know, what people do is they do their research, they're making progress, everybody has their own personal idea about this. And uh, you're probably not going to find, I mean, you're not going to find two scientists who've had exactly the same experience and have exactly the same opinion. But, Certainly, you have to be open-minded. You have to say, maybe, maybe there are aliens. Maybe they're in the solar system. You cannot rule out aliens in the solar system, for instance. Uh, we know, and I'll explain to you exactly why. I participated in an essay contest on the web in 1998, which was put out by Robert Bigelow's organization, which was called National Institute of Discovery Science. And he was looking into new approaches to SETI, to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And what I did is I put together a scenario that could have many, many aliens living in the solar system. And um, it works like this. We don't have to have any technology more advanced than the best solar sails we could think of today that would take a few thousand years to get to the nearest star. But there's two things to remember. Stars move around. At intervals of 100,000 years or so, a star more or less like the sun will be at something like one-third to one-quarter the distance of Alpha Centauri today. So a thousand-year trip to that star would take 300 years. And then when a star leaves the main sequence, as, as, as our sun ages, and any star ages, it becomes more luminous. So what you do is you run through this possibility and you see that over the last 4 billion years since the solar system started, there have been tens of thousands of near encounters with solar-type stars. And if some of those were stars that were leaving the main sequence, meaning they were even more luminous, a trip between that star and the sun would be a lot faster. They would have to use other ways to slow down, of course, like magnetic braking, meaning at the stellar medium, something like that, because the solar sail probably wouldn't be enough because, once again, although their star is lum that very luminous, the sun would not be. Uh, so that is certainly, you know, so the trick is you then have to say, if, they, if somebody came to the solar system, where are they? Everybody thinks, and in a million science fiction movies, they would naturally come to the Earth and enslave us and do stuff like that. But many scientists will disagree on this. They might study the Earth remotely, 
the earth would probably not be hospitable for them. There'd be many types of life forms, including microbes, that are quite dangerous. And if they come and there's a technological society, we would learn pretty quickly and be able to fight back. So instead of colonizing the Earth or Mars or something like that, it might make a lot more sense for them to go into the Kuiper Belt. The Kuiper Belt is a, well, Pluto is the largest Kuiper Belt member. And these are comet-like objects up to maybe a lot smaller than the moon, bigger than most comets. And they orbit between the orbit of Neptune and maybe about twice as far out from the sun. So what I did, and I, I published this in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society, is I basically was able to predict to say, let us say that there are small Kuiper Belt objects, 10 or 20 kilometers across, that are inhabited. If they're inhabited, they would get their energy from sunlight, basically, because even though it's far from the sun, it's not so far away that they couldn't get their energy from sunlight, sufficient energy from sunlight. And uh, you have to, what I had to do with this was figure out what the infrared signature of this thing would be. Because if they're organic creatures, as we are, they'd be, they're basically, what that basically would imply is that they would need a lot more heat than you would naturally find in the Kuiper Belt. If there's more heat, there's more infrared radiation. So this object would look brighter in the infrared than most similar-sized objects in the Kuiper Belt. So what I did with these papers a couple of years ago uh, is basically predict what the signature would be. Now, I co-authored the second paper with Dr. Tony Martin, who's a British um, plasma physicist, and he's a former editor of the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. What Tony did is he looked at the infrared signatures of the largest Kuiper Belt objects we have these, and of course, there was no demonstration there of anything artificial. You see, what you do, the whole trick, is you come up with scenarios. And it's like the whole, the whole trip, this is what, the, what everybody who searches for life or extraterrestrial life intelligence or otherwise is doing. You set up scenarios, you try different things, and sooner or later, we're going to hit the right scenario and find something. I'm, I'm very convinced that there's life all over the place because we're finding planets all over the place. We've now found a number of planets within the habitable zones of their stars, not Earth-like planets. Like I think they're called super-Earths. And people are starting to do searches for Earth-like planets around nearby stars. Within a few years, I'm sure we'll have found those also. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in, within our own solar system, people used to think, you know, the Earth was almost certainly the only place with life. But Mars is looking better and better for primitive life, at least in the distant past. Europa is an excellent possibility for life. And there's a moon of, of Saturn, Enceladus, which very possibly, it, it puts out liquid, it has liquid water geysers. Liquid water probably would also be a good sign of life. Titan even though it certainly wouldn't be good for our type of life, might well have something. And the list gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It doesn't get smaller. Mm-hmm. So when you look at all this, and you have to say, okay, if there's so much, if there's so many planets 
if there are Earth-like planets, and if there's life, we would have to explain why that life doesn't reach intelligence. We would also have to explain why intelligence doesn't develop technology. And if it develops technology, would it come and visit us? And uh, this is what the big trick, you know, what, what the big paradox is. This is called the Fermi paradox. And basically, the thing is, where is everybody? You know, and it is a paradox. It is unknown. And people are saying, okay, we're at the point very soon where we could conduct extrasolar exploration. And we're very new to this game. There are many, many sun-like stars around billions of years older than ours. When I say very, very many, I mean something in the, probably in the tens of billions in our galaxy alone. Um, so you basically have to say, why aren't they here? You know, why aren't we, or if they are here, um, how can we detect them? So what I've done is come up with a scenario that they could be here, and we just haven't gotten to the stage yet where we're capable of detecting them. Now, this basically is what science is about. It's coming up with something that's falsifiable. As time goes on, we're going to increase our sensitivity for infrared uh, detectors on large telescopes. We're going to probe further into the Kuiper Belt, and we will see if there is anything artificial there. By the way, I should give credit to the guy who first suggested this. Uh, I just took it up from where he left it off. He was Mike Papagianis, a radio astronomer at um, Boston University. And in 1985, he was the person who suggested we look in the Kuiper Belt, but that's a very good place to look for aliens. Uh, is SETI going to aim their telescopes there? Well, what they, what they do in finding Kuiper Belt objects, they don't really look for them. Uh, they, they're looking at something else, and they see a streak on the, on the plate. Well, it's not a plate anymore, it's on, it, but on, the, uh, on the detector screen. And they, they look then at that streak. They try to see if there's something known in that vicinity. If there's nothing known, they have a new Kuiper Belt object, and they will study it. And then they will go and point their equipment at it and uh, get more information. So uh, as of this particular point, the discoveries have been accidental, largely. With the except even, even Pluto, you might say, is accidental, because Pluto was discovered... Um, and it was misinterpreted. Uh, largely, it was a matter of luck. You know, uh, uh, Clyde Tombaugh happened to be looking at the right place at the right time, and he saw the second largest of the Kuiper Belt objects. But he was not. But the reason that he was looking, the perturbation of Neptune's orbit, is most likely due just not to a planet beyond Neptune, a big planet, but the whole cloud of maybe a trillion comets moves out uh, a third of the distance to the nearest star. So if there is something here now, some other intelligence, would it make more sense to you that it would be interdimensional than, than interplanetary? I would say that's another possibility, too. If you look at the, uh, at the, at the, record, at the record of folklore, there was a guy a couple of years, a number of years ago, decades ago, named Charles Fort, who collected strange stories from centuries centuries past, I believe he called his book Low, L-O, with a exclamation point. And when you look back, you know, 3,000 years ago, 
people were talking to gods, goddesses, um, semi-deities. It was direct communication. And then we go into a period of time in parts of the world where people are meeting fairies or leprechauns or elves. Uh, in the Middle Ages, in um, late Middle Ages in, in Europe, there was an experience that people have of the devil's footprints in the snow. And they're actually seeing the footprints left by the devil. And in around 1900, people are experiencing airships, mysterious airships, which are landing. Not spaceships, but airships. So, you know, you certainly have to say that this is one, that interdimensional type contact is one possibility. And probably a very good possibility. I certainly wouldn't rule that out. Uh, there's a French researcher, Jacques Vallée, an astrophysicist, who has done a lot of work on the UFO phenomenon, highly respected work. Actually, he was in close encounters of the third kind. He was the model for the French-speaking uh, astronomer who basically gets the music going. Right. Um, and But Jacques Vallée believes, uh, or... Uh, was pretty much his opinion that it wasn't dimensional, that these things didn't, that the UFO reports do not seem to be physical objects. In other words, they split, they join, they do strange maneuvers, almost like it's a projection of some type. Hmm. Or maybe some type of hologram. You know, that's another possibility. Jeff, do you want to jump in? Yeah. <clears throat> would, would the, the aspect that, that, that Jacques talks about, would that, um, you know, the, my biggest problem with the whole UFO thing is that I don't really see the extraterrestrial hypothesis that's been floated out there for so long as really being very viable anymore. Uh, just for the simple sake that we don't seem to have uh, the amount of physical evidence that we should have if another physical culture is coming here and dealing with us in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that would be one part of the question to you is how would we how would we look at an extraterrestrial culture visiting us and not leaving behind anything whatsoever that we can detect in any any meaningful way? And then the other half would be if it is a extra-dimensional or, um, uh, uh, I don't know how else to put it other than some sort of uh, uh, bizarre quantum aspect of this whole thing, uh, which I've kind of noticed in and out through the years of my own experiences, um, how would something like that be detected at all besides our ultimately fallible perceptions of it? Okay, I would basically agree with you about the UFO thing. Just looking at our own experience with space travel, when you look at what humans do, uh, we've gone to the moon and basically left garbage dumps. (laughs) Right. I mean, every landing site, and this will be validated when uh, people from America, Europe... Russia, China, India, and Japan, and who knows where else, go back there within another decade or so, they're going to see just a lot of crap. And even the experience of the astronaut a couple of weeks ago who lost that little toolkit at the International Space Station, a $100,000 toolkit escaped from her, we seem to be klutzy. And this is built into the human basically the human equation, so you have to explain how are they all visiting us 
and we don't even find a screw of extraterrestrial <laughs> origin. Right. I, I, I certainly can't, I, I can't buy the thing about Area 51 because whenever I've, no matter how high up I've gone in the NASA hierarchy, nobody knows anything about it. It's always maybe one step above them or one step above that. Right. If it's, and if it's a conspiracy, why is it, is that the only conspiracy that this country can keep secret? Uh, after all, you know, the, the, the development of the nuclear bomb, which should have been a monopoly for the U.S., leaked, and it leaked like a sieve all over the place. Right. Uh, and then, of course, uh, a former president's sex life, which should have been his own private life. That leaked also. We, we as a society, we're incapable of keeping secrets, except maybe for this one. So I, I simply don't, I don't believe it. I believe that... What the, I basically believe what finally came out of the analysis after the Freedom of Information Act, that the UFO hypothesis was used by the Department of Defense and the CIA to cover up their illegal spying on the Soviet Union in 1947. Right. And so, you know, rather than it being a spy balloon or something like that that crashed with, with, nu with nuclear detection devices, have them believe it's a UFO, fine. Sure. Uh, so, okay. So that's what I would say about that. Now, in terms of it being a some type of quantum event or interdimensional event, uh, maybe, I mean, all we can say about quantum mechanics in the brain is that the, is that the spacing between neurons is suitable for quantum events to occur. And then you can list the quantum events. You can say quantum tunneling, you can say, which means that your thoughts could go elsewhere in your own brain or to someone else's. Uh, you can talk about quantum co correlation, which might mean you can see the future or see the past, uh, or of course read someone else's mind. Uh, the Casimir effect, which means you can talk to the divine. But, you know, people now are writing books about all this stuff. I think, I think if you go to the New Age section of any bookstore, you'll see a lot more on that than serious quantum mechanics. There's no way that we can determine exactly what quantum effects are operating within the brain at any one time, probably without killing the organism. And we don't want to do that. We also, we, it's hard to tell, maybe impossible to tell, which of these effects or other effects are more significant. Now, to say that is, is there somebody out there who understands this better than we do, who's mastered it, or maybe somebody from another dimension, or a deity, let's say, that can operate through our own brains, maybe what used to be called a mass hallucination that they would produce, uh, you can't rule that out. But it's, but it's so frustrating because you can't prove it. Right. And and that's you know that is the frustration of, of the of the whole field why so many people won't touch it. Do you right. ever get frustrated um, that New Age? Authors and Buddhists and the Dalai Lama uh, all try to use physics to prove out their belief systems? Not really, because from my point of view, the only one of the major religions 
which comes moderately close to being validatable in terms of science is Buddhism or some form of Buddhism because the void is everything. And we know now that the creative void is what the universe came from. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, one could always argue that there might be somebody directing it through the void. You Wait know? A minute. Did so, you say we, we now know that the create everything came from the creator void? No, the creative void. Oh, the cre okay, in the creative words, void. In other words, the dynamic vacuum. Huh. Well, I, I actually had that experience. So, so yeah, you're right. <laughs> but how okay. do we uh, how do we know that um, through science? Okay. What happened was this: in the 1930s, uh, P.A.M. Dirac, Paul Dirac, basically came up with a theory, and basically called this the I believe the quantum C, SEA, and he figured that there would be Underlying the vacuum, the vacuum is not completely empty, this extremely dynamic um, series of processes, and large amounts of energy, large amounts of mass coming into and out of existence in the twinkling of an eye, and positive mass, negative mass, positive energy, negative energy, everything balancing itself out. So on the average, there'd be zero. And he was actually able to come up with a prediction his prediction was that an antiparticle to the electron would be discovered, and this was the positron. And for this, people got the Nobel Prize. I don't recall if he did, but the, but the um, inventor, not the inventor, the discoverer of the positron certainly did. Now, what happened next is to maybe related a bit more to us. In the 1940s, a Dutch guy named Casimir was investigating the bonds which hold molecules together, the water molecule. And he figured initially that this would all be electrodynamic, electricity, magnetism. But he noted that as, he, as the distance changed between molecules, the forces changed in, a, in something that was 20 or 30% off from what electromagnetic theory predicted. And he said, okay, you have these electromagnetic fluctuations. And not all of them can fit in between the molecules. They're too close together. So you have a vacuum pressure pressing the molecules together. And this, of course, had become known as the Casimir effect, zero-point energy, stuff like that. He was able to do a couple of early experiments, but they really couldn't be replicated at that time. That was the 1940s, early 19, late 40s, early 50s. It was not until the 90s, I believe, that nanotechnology had evolved to the point where people were able to do something uh, with charged conductive plates with separations much less than a micron to demonstrate that the Casimir effect was for real. And now it's, now it's been validated. It is an accepted uh, part of science. And um, some of the quantum physicists who studied it have also noted the fact that the, um, in fact, I would like to think I was the first one to notice that the separation between neurons in the brain was um, almost perfect for the quantum effect. And I'll tell you the story. It was maybe, who knows, maybe this would be a, a contact story. I had two friends 
and unfortunately, they were both older than me, and they were both mentors. They are no longer with us in the least in corporeal form. One was Bob Forward, who was an expert on um, basically various types of space drives, including the solar sail. And the other fellow is Evan Harris Walker, who was a pioneer on the physics of consciousness, the quantum physics of consciousness. And I think it was 1990 or 1991, <laughs> I was teaching a couple of courses at Long Island University, as Brooklyn, their Brooklyn campus. They have a good nursing department and a physical therapy department, so they also have a nice library. And I had time between classes. I had just read something of uh, Bob Forwards, which said that the um, idea, if you're going to build something to try to tap zero-point energy in a space drive, and this may or may not ever be possible, the idea of separation of the charged conducting plates is 20 nanometers, 20 billionths of a meter. I looked through Harris's paper, and he talks about the separation between synapses in the brain, the intersynaptic spacing, but he doesn't mention the numbers. So I said, i got to find out what this number is. So I was at the college, and I picked up a dictionary of um, anatomy, and I basically fell on the floor because the ideal spacing is 20 nanometers. And I didn't believe it, so I went to another dictionary, an old encyclopedia, I forget which, and that confirmed it. So what I did next is I... I forget if it, I forget if we had email at the time, or if I just if I wrote anywhere. I communicated with both Bob Forward and Harris Walker about this, and said this is pretty amazing. And uh, within a few months, um, uh, Roger Penrose in the United Kingdom began publishing his work, which basically is sort of similar to this. So, and other people have caught up, up in it also. I never published it, but I would like to think that I was the first, <laughs> and then other people heard from me. But of course, uh, you know, by via the grapevine, of course, in as many as people have observed, ideas propagate when they're ready in many minds hmm. at the same time. And I wasn't going to publish this idea because it's not my field, although I certainly found it fascinating. Other people were going to jump on it. Yeah, Jeff and I were just talking about that uh, yesterday, about, you know, hey, have you ever just said something online and then suddenly you see it everywhere and you wonder if yes. people are stealing from you? Maybe oh, that's yeah. just it. It's just an idea whose time has come. Yeah. Let me ask you, I have a, sort of my own little personal physics question. Is it possible that the more we break down quanta, uh, eventually, because you're going to get to nothing, what you're going to hit is your own projection? Well, I don't know. This is what, because of the observer effect, um, you know, once again, as you break down more and more, the interaction between the observer and the observed becomes more and more significant. You're dealing more and more with probabilities. And there are some people who say, this is an extreme case, that the universe only exists because it's observed. So if that's true, yeah, you know, <laughs> everything is a projection. Hmm. And there are people who've come up with theories that the universe is basically a hologram. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying anything unique over here. Mm -hmm. huh. 
And uh, Jeff, why don't you ask him yeah. your your <clears throat> million dollar question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine's uh, mine's a little a little bit uh, convoluted, but I, I just want to give you like a little bit of backstory as to how this fits into the question. Uh, throughout my life with uh, with these bizarre experiences, and I, I'm one of those guys who's basically seen. A little bit of everything. I mean, I've had the majority of stuff has been the UFO slash alien, whatever that may mean, um, interaction events, which are always for me extraordinarily terrifying. Uh, but my wife and I and, and some other members of my family have also experienced the ghost phenomena, that kind of thing. Um, I'm seeing as time goes on and I get older. Uh, that there are a lot of connective tissues between these type of events. And one of them being is I seem to find an effect that is the more attention or the more uh, focus that is placed upon a subject like this, the more the enigma itself or the anomaly itself seems to manifest itself. Um and I'm not talking about uh, laying there listening for that bump in the night. It's essentially um, uh, deep thought or deep questions, deep personal questions about, in particular, the UFO alien phenomena. Uh, really kind of focusing on that for long periods of time and then forgetting about it, not really expecting anything to happen or, or looking for anything to happen. And all of a sudden, that's when you'll get your most undeniable experience. And I've had those experiences both alone and with other people. Mm-hmm. So how does all of that kind of figure in? I mean, I, I've come across some things uh, in, in quantum physics based on the observer and, and the, uh, the focus of intent that seem to make, or, or, or so it's said, that these things can manifest uh, Changes in your life, changes in your work, your money, your your relationships, whatever. I ignore all that for the most part, and I look at how I've been with these different phenomena. It's been based on the amount of attention that I seem to devote to it. And at one point, my home life, my wife can attest to this, was pretty much a three-ring circus. We had things going on almost... Uh, on a weekly basis, there would be some type of really undeniable event, a sighting, uh, uh, the, these beings, which were at times very solid uh, and very real, tangibly real to me, but at other times were nothing more than uh, perceived distortions in the air, uh, uh, humps in the air, if you want to call them that, uh, almost akin to a ghost phenomenon. So, these things were all perceived by myself, other people around me at different times, but always in line with how much attention or focus had been placed upon it at any given moment. Okay. So I'm curious how that kind of works into the, 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 the physical aspects of, of the quantum effect. Okay, I think what this, it would seem to me from what you're saying, and I would probably agree that if UFO phenomenon are of this nature, uh, they are not a physical phenomenon. In other words, these aren't space aliens. This is something else. Right. In fact, it may even, this may be the, what you're saying may be the answer to the Fermi paradox, because as a civilization advances, it may get to the point where 
it looks inward instead of outward. And it starts, I mean, I can imagine, what if the concept, for instance, of ghosts are real? What, I mean, you've, you've experienced ghosts. Right. Correct? And I know other people who have also. I've never really seen a ghost. But what if it is possible to communicate with the dead? What if the, there is a cycle of life and death? What if they're with us? What if they're reincarnated? Whatever. In a situation like that, if we develop a technology that can do this, that would become, to me, probably a lot more fascinating than flying, you know, a couple of light years to explore another planet or to colonize another planet. And, you, and the society might choose not to do something like that until it had to, until its star died because the inward exploration would become much more important. Mm. And, you know, we certainly are advancing at a very, very rapid rate in quantum mechanics and in computing. Ultimately, at some particular point, somebody will manage to have a quantum computer. And what this will tell us about these events, uh, I just don't know. I mean, it's... I mean, I mean, it's a time of great mystery, to me at least, and great possibilities, and it's almost like there is something shimmering at the very edge of reality. It's almost like saying, hey guys, this is the answer. You don't understand it yet. The answer <laughs> right. is right here. You know? Right. And uh, it's, you know, it almost looks sometimes like we're being programmed to move in a certain direction. Right, right. I mean, that sounds ultimately familiar to me. I mean, I'm not entirely sure how familiar you are with the the DMT research that's been going on. Um, uh, uh, DMT, it's DMT research. It's um, uh, well, basically, it, it's uh, it's a, a compound that's that's all over the place. It's in all forms of life in one form or another. I think for us, Jeremy, it's the penile gland is where right. DMT is produced. And 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 uh, a guy named Terrence McKenna uh, did quite a lot of work and uh, and research in, into um, the shamanic practices of of certain peoples down in the Amazon, South America, and, and elsewhere. And what they have found with uh, DMT research is is that when uh, enough DMT is ingested by a person, that the anyone who takes it at a sufficient prepared dosage is experiencing the same um, experience, which is being in a round, white, softened light room, uh, and there are beings there. Um, yeah. And and uh, McKenna referred to it as elf. Uh, uh, you're you're plunged into like an elf mentality of uh, uh, or different reality. He said this was not uh, a state of mind. This was a place. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I find that to be truly fascinating stuff because most of what is it, in my own experiences has been this very bizarre, surrealistic um, uh, air to this whole UFO thing that has, has thrown me for a loop several times. Um, but I'm always torn between... Uh, the the dimensional or possibly um, 
uh, well, I guess dimensional is the best way to put it, that they exist all around us at any given time. We just cannot perceive them without being in an altered state of consciousness. Right. And that part has always been the toss-up for me because I think, like I said on, on a previous show, was that Carl Sagan actually said that if we ever met uh, a culture that had evolved completely independent of Earth and all of her influences, that the experience would be inexplicably weird. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always kind of torn between the two, but these days I lean more towards... Um, that uh, that reality is far more than we've come to know it as, and that there's far more to life and existence than we've ever been dared to believe. I think the the only thing that a rational and sane and sensitive person can do is to keep an open mind, mm-hmm. is to sort of look around and say, I live in a wonderful place. This is a marvelous universe. I don't understand it. Completely. I mean, the astronomers have to admit that they can, you know, they can measure and observe maybe five percent of what's out there, which is very shocking to them. Even things like negative, like you know, negative energy, uh, whatever that is, right? <laughs> and uh, dark matter, dark energy, dark matter. I mean, these, this all ties in, and it's all part, I think, of the same mosaic. And uh, I just, you know, would like to hope that, okay, I'm going to just say hello. I just hope that in our lifetimes, uh, we get to understand it a little bit better. So why, just, why do you think it is that, that scientists and, uh, you know, NASA in particular, have, um, have a rap as, as thinking that they've got everything down and that it's all going to boil down to some sort of materialism? Okay, I don't, but basically you have to remember that what NASA has is, it's an organization which is funded by government agencies. And the politicians who fund NASA have to be very careful about their own constituents. Uh, The people at NASA have been burned. The people in in SETI have been burned. And what happened, the burning occurred in, um, I think, the mid-1990s when NASA had revived its SETI project called Project Phoenix, Come Back from the Dead, and the the firebird that rises from its own ashes. And uh, basically, they were going for funding for the second year, and there was a congressman who stood up with a National Enquirer, and said, gee, they want $2 million to listen for little green fellows, and they haven't netted one yet. And yet right here in this here newspaper, they're here all the time. And apparently the entire House of Representatives broke out in hysterics, and the funding never happened. So NASA is extremely careful. Another thing, basically, is that what Carl Sagan said, and I believe he was right in something like this, extraordinary... Theories require extraordinary evidence to prove them. If this is proven, if something like this exists, if there are aliens or if there are interdimensional beings, aliens nearby who we can have contact with, or interdimensional beings who influence our own lives, this will change everything. And therefore, 
uh, we have to be very careful. Another reason is that there have been too many frauds. You know, the human culpability works so beautifully. Uh, uh, look what happened in the 1960s with the Stanford Research Institute and a certain very famous uh, psychic who turned out to be a magician. I won't mention the person's name. Uh, many quantum physicists were taken in by this. A lot of forks got bent, which turned out to be a very nice little trick. Uh, okay, uh, but the person who did this, although he, you know, no matter what type of psychic ability he manifested, he certainly was a magician, mm -hmm. uh, he did extremely well financially, simply from the celebrity factor. And this goes on totally, it, uh, you know, like another example with NASA, they're looking very carefully for life on Mars. And somebody who had been a NASA contractor starts writing books about the great face of Cydonia. So, you know, which turns out to be a sand dune. But, okay, by the time the later probes demonstrated it's a sand dune, a lot of, there's been a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of sand under the bridge, a lot of books have been sold, a lot of lecture tour money's been spent. Some people have gotten very rich off this. So NASA has to be exceedingly careful. And, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example of how careful they are about it. There was a conference at Princeton University a couple of years ago. And I was there, as was a NASA colleague. People decided to visit the what's called the Pair Society, which is the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab. And this was funded by one of the initially by one of the aerospace companies was basically saying, look, we're getting this quantum level equipment in these fighter planes. And the quantum level equipment is being operated by young men and young women on, or the young men at least on testosterone, the young women probably on a lot of estrogen, very excited, very energetic, and very scared probably. Who knows what effects are going to go on? So let's investigate these things. And they basically have under the direction of a guy named Robert Yarn, I believe an electrical engineer, gotten some provocative results. But the NASA manager who was with us could not go into the facility. He waited outside because he was very, very afraid of what would happen if his name were associated with it. Hmm. Simply because they'd been burned before. And you get burned enough, you get very scared and very, very cautious. So huh. when when you uh, so would you say that for instance Seth Shostak you're friends with him right yeah and he goes on Larry King and he laughs off all of these UFO cases on there and debunks and debunks do you think that he's being authentic or do you think he's covering Seti's hide based on all of what you've just told us well I think that basically there's a point of view and the point of view is that if you are funded by the Seti Institute you have to dissociate yourself from these things which have gone on before. But, you know, while, and also, you have to be, you have to be a little open at the same time. Like, if you look at his books, his books are open on interstellar travel. His books are open on the possibility of direct contact. But he's also saying, let's have proof. Yes. In other words, one of the main problems and I'm sure you've seen it too, 
when you were with a real UFO enthusiast, somebody who is absolutely convinced that these are spaceships, they present a scenario, and you can go through hours and hours and hours, or weeks and weeks and weeks, discussing it, coming up with a rational explanation, and then they look at you and say, well, what if this is the case? And it's very easy for them to change one or two things, mm -hmm. but very, very, very difficult for you to look at all the permutations. And that's not the way science works. In science, science has to be falsifiable. In other words, you set up a hypothesis, and the hypothesis has to be such that it can be either proven or disproven at any point. Hmm. And I would say, yeah, like, you know, you can say about UFOs, you can say, if there were UFOs in the number, and if the UFOs are flying saucers or alien spaceships, in the number that people report, they have to live in the solar system. And if they live in the solar system, they have to live in the court of the belt. It's a logical place. So let's come up with a third strategy, which is falsifiable. And, you know, you can, it doesn't have to be the court of the belt. You could do the same thing about the near-Earth objects, the moons of Mars, what have you as long as it's falsifiable, as long as you can uh, answer it one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Jeff, do you have any uh, further? Ooh, uh, my head is smoking. Jeff, wake up. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a nice uh, long interview, I know. <laughs> uh, it's, it's great, though. Um, now, I think, um, I think there was one question that's already been answered that I had, which was... Uh, um, the proof thing. I mean, that's. I, I think ultimately, when you start talking about this subject, and I, and I think the public generally has the idea that that NASA. I mean, due to people like James Oberg and and uh, and and Shostak, they they look at that and they say, well, then all these people, they, they, as a whole, they don't believe this. I mean, would you say it's kind of uh, with who you've interacted with at NASA? And I realize you may not have been able to get into deep conversations about this subject with them, but do you find that more of them are more open to this subject than what the public may outwardly see all the time? I would say that there's no such thing as a typical NASA person as a NASA point of view. I saw basically three or four different types of people there. And the type who I found most interesting to deal with were the visionaries, which are maybe 20 or 30 percent of NASA. Mm. Uh, and among these people, I would say they're open. They're saying we are exploring, we're doing something new, we're moving into totally new realms, we don't know what we're going to find. Mm. And, you know, if we find intelligence or signs of intelligence, wonderful, great, let's keep open to that. But on the other hand, it will still require, because it's such an extraordinary event, it would and a world-changing event to find it, it will, it will require extraordinary evidence. Thank you very much for coming on and doing this with us. You're welcome, Great. guys. Thank you. Welcome. Bye -bye. And good night. Bye-bye. So, Jeff, what do you make of The Good Doctor? Did you get to ask all of your physics questions you've ever wanted to ask? Well, no, not all of them, uh, but I, I didn't want to keep him <laughs> very long to explain all those questions. But yeah, I mean, uh, some. I mean, I found the uh, I found the solar sail stuff pretty interesting. I don't know about you, but that was uh, that was a pretty interesting little 
little speech he gave there about that. Um, I think though, uh, he's great because I mean, he's, he's a freaking scientist, but at the same time, he keeps all these possibilities on the table. Uh, it doesn't seem to poo poo anything away out of hand, which is, you know, I hate to say it, but the, the way scientists are portrayed in the media, especially when it comes to this subject, uh, they're always portrayed as the ones who just, you know, poo-poo this all away, and it's nothing, and this isn't what you saw, this is what you saw, and I think it was uh, pretty refreshing to talk to a man like him who keeps these options on the table and doesn't just dismiss them. Um, uh, yeah, and I really, I get a kick out of the fact that his, you know, his big in contact experience was simply hearing a woman say his name loudly right. <laughs> and there was nobody around. You know, yeah. it's like, it's that simple little thing. That's all it That takes. one little thing, cha- it was like a butterfly flapped its wings mm-hmm. and created a tsunami across the world. You know, it changed the course of his life or, yeah. you know, in some way altered it um, or helped form it. I, I find that fascinating. Yeah. Well, I'm willing to bet that he's had more. Well, yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm willing to yeah, bet he's I had think, some more. <laughs> I think uh, there's more... Than wings on that butterfly, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The, that butterfly has some almond-shaped eyes, uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. I mean, I think uh, and I think it was kind of refreshing to hear somebody talk about uh, you know uh, folks at NASA like being. Uh, uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if he went as far as to say that they're ultimately interested in this subject, but I think that the fact that they keep that aspect open, that they're at least willing to entertain the idea of that. Um, I mean, as far as the uh, uh, the focus and tension uh, angle, um, uh, I mean, where does anybody go with that? I, I don't know what I, I don't know what kind of answer I expect out of that question, but it's like um, you know, in, in relation to the, to the observer and the observed, and I thought the way he answered that was uh, was, was I think as good as answers you're ever going to get from anyone about it, because frankly, we just don't know enough. Well, yeah, you about can't that, know what's but, going on in the human brain that way, or now, not now. Now, but there's enough room in there to to hypothesize that it's possible, right, for us to basically leave our, you know, think in someone else's brain, you know, to project into someone else's brain. Yeah, you know, some yeah. sort of psychic thing. I mean, once you're ready to allow that, then it's not that much of a leap to allow that there might be a race of beings. Uh, who need us to perceive them to pull them into this dimension? Right, right, and 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 the thing that I did want to mention in in that whole scenario is there's your answer for why uh, we don't have any real hard tangible proof. Like he said, a nut off of one of the nuts and bolts off of something, uh, or even biological material that doesn't match up to anything that is connected to you know a contact event. I mean, we don't have that. We've never had that. Um, I mean, he did, say you, he did say you may have answered Fermi's paradox, so you might be a genius. Maybe you should get the number. Yeah, let's, let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think that that answers the, the whole question of why we don't have anything. The one thing I would have liked to ask, and maybe if we have him on again, I'll get to this, is, is that uh, if another culture or or uh, beings are coming here from some parallel dimension of some sort or whatever else place that there could be that we don't know about that is in our midst all the time uh if they came here would something like that in some kind of parallel dimension be able to stay here for an extended period of time or would it be uh, 
only in those short spurts would there be windows. I mean, I think uh, Heineck mentioned that um, uh, I heard someone had mentioned that he he regulated this whole thing to a certain point to doors and windows uh, opportunities for uh, them to slip in, but that they could not stay. Uh, that uh, I guess you know if you want to get into the whole uh, dimensionality type of thing that that it can't exist here for very long. Whatever their technology is, that whatever they've developed is what uh, may allow them to stay for as long as they're able. But at a certain point, the, the, they lose cohesion and cease to exist here. Maybe that's why no sighting really lasts all that long. Um, uh, and I'm talking about the ones that we can't really um, regulate or assign to a black project or a top-secret craft of some sort. Um, uh, that's kind of the part where a lot of people have issue with that portion of my outlook on this stuff these days is, well, Jeff, what about landing trace cases? Um, I'm not saying that things can't be physically real enough to interact with the environment, but we also don't know how many of these black projects that are out there that that our, our lovely government military are developing that are landing in a farmer's field somewhere and doing crop damage uh, or burning of, of uh, the tops of trees and then getting out. We, we, there's no way to really differentiate that. Uh, you know, Ted Phillips has said that, you know, he's done, he's done uh, throngs of work on uh, landing trace cases, but I don't remember anything ever coming out of it being, you know, we've got extraterrestrial debris or we've got debris here uh, or effects here that could not possibly have been created by any other means that we have. Um, I've not heard that. I mean, I think if we had by now, we'd know about it. Um, so there's a real, where's the line of demarcation and what is uh, a black project's effects on our environment and what is this phenomenon's effects on our environment? I don't know that we'll be able to differentiate that, if there is any, from the phenomena at all. The only thing I really wanted to ask him outside of all this was... Um you know, he basically, well, he didn't say Richard Hoagland, but that's what he was talking about, sure. the face on Mars stuff. But there was a woman, right, who came out and said that she was, uh, she worked at NASA and she was told to doctor photos that showed buildings or something, right, on, yeah, on the moon something or on Mars about or whatever. That, yeah. Something, you know, I'm probably butchering the story, but it's, you know, I, I wonder if he knows about that and what he thinks about her. Uh, she's, I remember seeing the interview. You know, oddly enough, I remember her. Uh, seeming pretty honest, um, but I don't remember the story. <laughs> well, and you notice that that kind of it kind of peaked up, and then you didn't really hear that much about it. There was never really any big hoopla over it, other than the initial out interview that she did. I don't remember, you know, a big. Uh, I don't remember a big stir about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean. <laughs> You know, a skeptic would say, well, that's because it wasn't true. And and a believer would say, well, then she was told to shut the hell up. So we never know what that I mean. But there is I've seen a couple of NASA photographs that that show pretty, pretty evident retouching. Uh, So the question is, what are they retouching? Well, you know, it's also interesting. He he's obviously had these conversations with at least two top scientists Mm -hmm. who have revealed to him their contact experiences. Yeah. Um, and he also said that he did go snooping around, right, to look into, like, Area 51. Um, (laughs) So he, you know, some of this stuff must really pique his interest on more than just a theoretical level. Right, 
Right. You know? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, we should have probably gotten into that more. You know, he, he, in other words, I mean, he must have spoken to a good number of people about this topic. I wonder what specifically they had to say. Obviously, they didn't say, you better shut up and, and not ever talk about this. Right, right, you know, right, Conspiracy right. stuff didn't happen. So, Ow. you know, what did they say? Well, two people we know said, yeah, I had contact experiences, too. <laughs> which I find fascinating. Wouldn't it be nice to be a fly on the wall for that, you know? Yeah, I would love to know who that is. Michu Kaku. We can have him <laughs> on and just accuse him of being, like, just start talking about it. Like, yeah, you know, Dr. Matloff uh, mentioned that you saw a UFO. Maybe in California. It might have been in South America. Right, yeah. And just to see if we can get him to out himself. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's going to happen, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's kind of like uh, the wow signal from SETI. You know, I mean, they they uh, uh, they talk about how important that was, and the, the guy, you know, wrote on the uh, the readout, wow, and it was a big deal, and and uh, but they've never heard anything from that direction again. Um, you know, I mean, I think that there's, I think when you when you stick with a, pro- a project like SETI for long enough, you've got to hear some interesting things. And uh, I don't think we hear about all of them. I really don't. I mean, my my big question was going to be to him was, well, if if NASA ever did come across anything, say on Mars, they came across something absolutely definitive that said there was not only microbial life on there, but that there was, um, you know, uh, life like us, you know, completely intelligent and and had technology. What if they found something really bizarre uh, on Mars? Would we get to hear about it? I mean, do you honestly believe we'd get to hear about it? I, I got real reservations about if, if, if the government would actually, or the you know the the, the whatever powers that be, um, would actually let NASA say that. Uh, I think people are ready to hear that. I think everybody's uh, you know right on the edge of, of. Uh, Saying, yeah, I, I would want to know that, but I question whether I don't think something like that's going to change our lives. Um, uh, I think the only thing it might do is uh, is maybe set a religion on its ear a little bit. But um, you know, I, I I don't know. I always um, and I know it's a movie, uh, but uh, I always think back to the movie Contact and how that uh, you know when they started getting the definitive signal. Um, you know, they were immediately clamped down. You've got to be quiet about this. This is now a top secret project. This is, you know, this, that, and the other. So I got to wonder, you know, would we be allowed to know? Would, would someone sneak it out? Uh, you know, that's, that's the big question. Cause NASA says, you know, outwardly, well, this is what we're looking for. If there were, you know, if there was evidence, we would be talking about it. But like he says, they have to be extraordinarily careful about what they say. Uh, yeah, I thought all of that was very interesting. That was damn interesting, yeah. Probably the most telling of anything. Yeah. Um, I, um, you know, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking, geez, you know, if if these beings are here and they're having these covert conversations with you and I and others, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they don't want to be outed, um, then... Why do we want to out this? You know what I mean? Like either, either if they have a nefarious purpose for hiding, then do we really want to screw with that and and, and risk 
the the ramification, you know, risk the repercussions of that. And Dematerialization. Not, <laughs> yeah, and and if they're not, if they're doing it for our own health in some way that we can't recognize, then do we really want to screw with that? Hmm. I mean, what are the options? Those are the two, right? Is there another option? Well, this is the whole why are they here question. Is that what this is? Well, no, this is a whole why do we want um, disclosure about, you know, taking that all of this is a given, not, not you know. Well, I don't know that. I don't know. That, well, I mean, I've, I've said for a long time I don't know that we do. Um, <laughs> I don't know that we do. Uh, everybody crying for disclosure, and they don't even know what they're asking for. So, um, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I mean, the way I look at it, if if uh, um, if this whole thing wanted to be known about tomorrow to everyone, it would be, and there wouldn't be anything anyone could do to stop it. Um, but I tend to think that. Uh, I tend to think the large part of the cover-up, if there is such a thing as a cover-up with all this, is that it, the the beings are the ones doing the covering up. And maybe it's because that they don't want to panic us. They don't want uh, – I mean, I think the idea of having uh, uh, beings around you, walking through you, and occupying the same general space would be pretty uncomfortable to most people. Uh, I don't know how people would actually handle that. Well, yeah, you talk about this in terms of it being toxic, and I think mm-hmm. just just in thinking about the secrecy aspect, that that has to be true, whether it's toxic because they're bad guys doing toxic things. Well, once again, if we find that out, then what are the ramifications? Um, and if it's that they're toxic for reasons that they understand and we don't, and they're trying and they're actually benefiting us by not coming out and being public with whatever they're doing then we shouldn't know that. <laughs> well, know? I mean, if, if we it's... Just let nature take its course. If it's toxic because of how we're perceiving it, maybe it's something, as I said before, maybe it's something that we have to do. Uh, and maybe part of what they're doing is trying to... But it's to, obviously you know, not something that can be remedied by them coming out and shaking our hands and saying, this is what we are, or whatever. You know what I mean? If right. there was some way to remedy it on that surface level, it would have been done it's by now. Done, yeah. On the cards. Yeah, it's a lot more complicated than that, I'm sure. But... Um, you know, I think, uh, I mean, and ask me in a year's time what I think, and, and it could be totally different, but I'm leaning towards the direction that it, it seems toxic because of us uh, and, and our perception of it. I think what they, you know, if you want to get in, you know, what, what are they doing? Why don't they just come out like that? I don't, I don't, I think that maybe they might know a little bit about how it's going to look to us and maybe that they're trying in some way to, uh, shove it out that they're not what we think they are. Uh, and we have to, I, I don't know what we have to do <laughs> to, to, uh, to get past the notion of perceiving these things the way we do. But I mean, clearly it's giving us signs that, you know, it's not what it claims or seems to be. This is, and this is on, obviously must be on our part or it wouldn't be showing up as a Hoover end cap. Uh, you know, floating over the Amazon. I keep going back to that because I think that's such an important point. And that, by the way, isn't the only case like that. Um, I mean, I've talked before about the woman seeing the uh, the eighteen wheeler tractor trailer over her barn. Same thing. It's it you know it's it's appearing in that form. Uh, and, to, and to me, that's a big clue. Is that uh, you know we need to uh, 
break the cultural contamination issue and uh and how how do we do that i don't i don't have any idea you know and it's also funny listening to him talk about um you know, as a kid, he has a contact experience. Or any of these people, you know, who are major scientists that have these contact experiences, I would then think, you know, if that were me, uh, my life would feel masturbatory after that. All of this looking into outer space and all that. It would just, unless, as he said, he felt like it somehow put him on a path, right? Uh-huh. So, so that would be the only way it wouldn't feel masturbatory, is if we were on a path. So if you're put on a path to go through these rudimentary steps of science, um, that, that, that again means that there's something that these beings in this whole space travel thing will not or cannot give us, but want us to have because they're obvious because they're beeping into his life and putting him on a path toward it. Right. But they're not giving it to him directly. So something about that, uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Is there, is there a clue in there to what's going on? I mean, that's very specifically yeah. space travel, oriented stuff maybe i mean um what did whitley say in in the 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 first show about uh that the these beings have more to do with um pulling the strings uh in in our lives and in our um in our reality that far more than we think uh and if that's true then you know are they uh, uh nudging in certain directions to make different discoveries. I mean, well, Matt uh, said that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know that I disagree with that. Um, uh, I mean, I can only tell you that, that way back when, um, when I first started getting into this really, really heavily, which was, you know, after I was married, um, I remember telling my wife that, uh, and we, I, me- I remember exactly where I was. I was standing out on on my deck, and I was just looking around outside at dark. And and uh, uh, she says, "You know, you, you know the stigma that's attached to this if you start talking about this stuff." And and we were newly married and um, working professionals, which we still are. But uh, she's like, "You know, the stigma attached to this stuff is that you're insane." And I told her, I said, "I can't escape." The overwhelming feeling that getting into this and digging around in it and talking about it openly and brutally honestly uh, about everything is uh, uh, I felt literally um, pushed to do it uh, like I don't think I've ever like, you know, when you make a choice in your life and you go, this is the right choice. There's always that little bit of doubt that, <laughs> you know, could I screw this up? Um, I never had that feeling at all when it came to becoming involved intimately in this subject. I always, it was, it was the most overwhelming feeling of this is the way to go. This is what you have to do. Um, uh, so I did feel kind of, uh, and there was not a hint of apprehension about it. There was not a hint of, of, um, uh, I could fail at this or, or, or whatever. I just, uh, uh, I just had that overwhelming feeling of this is this is what I have to do. This is very very important, and I'm making the right choice in exposing myself um, to this and to the public in 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 interacting in this community about this subject. So um, I didn't have any great experience that you know pinged that off and said you must do this or 
you know, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like I was set on a path, but I certainly had that feeling of this is what I'm supposed to be doing, which I guess is why I've never been able to get away from it. Well, here's the other thing is, you know, when I think about my experiences, you know, I think about them in terms of uh, them unfolding um, in a logical way. But you, but but how does that fit in with your thinking that, that, and I've experienced it, so I know that it's true, of, you know, of uh, concentrating on it and then, and then shutting up and then it comes to you. Um, Do you think that they're, both are true at the same time or do you think one over the other? You think you're put on a path? Uh, or are you the co-creator of your path? I think that I think that that aspect of it when I first got into it never occurred to me. And it took a long time for that to actually sink in. Uh, that uh that this effect is there and it's not just there for me. It's there for a whole lot of people. Um, and not just in the UFO thing either, not, not just for that, but, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the ghost crowd and, and, uh, and whoever else studies paranormal events in general. Um, I've talked to people about that before and they've, they've, Oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So this is not like a new thing. Uh, as far as the experience goes, but I think it's certainly um, it's certainly one of the aspects that I think that I was meant to see uh, from it, or else it, I don't, it, you know, I don't think it would have uh, manifested in the way that it did to be so damned obvious about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I almost feel like that was one of the things that I was supposed to talk about that the, um, and particularly when I saw people in. Uh, the abduction thing. I mean, 10 or 12 years ago, when you talked about stopping abductions for people who really didn't want it to happen to them anymore, that not one person that I talked to ever said, oh, well, you can't, that you can't, you, there's no way that you, you can't stop it. That was the theory back then. That was the whole idea. It can't be stopped. You have to learn to integrate it into your life. And uh, yeah, past experiences, you do. You have to learn how to integrate that into who you are and what your experience in life has been. And it will change the way you look at the world. There's no question of that. Uh, I know you've probably not been asked half a dozen times, uh, how do you live? How do you, <laughs> how do you get up and, and go to work and have a job and a family and, 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 and this is going on? Um, you do because you have to. Uh, but most people back then... I saw real people really suffering with this whole issue. Um, and I think that part, seeing that and then finding out later on that, wait a minute, the more you're, you're upset by this and the more you focus on, I don't want this to happen, and uh, you, you're just bringing more of it in. You're, you're in this endless cycle of worry, fear, experience, worry, fear, experience, worry, fear, experience. And the, the, the constant is that is that you are focusing on what you don't want. <laughs> and what you don't want or you do want is irrelevant. It's you're focusing on this subject, that experience, your fear, their fearsomeness, and you're just perpetuating it over and over and over. And um, And again, I always have to say this is not about 
because I really want to drive this point home because a lot of people hear what I'm saying and say, well, of course you're seeing aliens because you expect to see something weird. So therefore, everything you see is going to be weird. And, and I'm not going to sit on this chair and lie and tell these people that, uh, that I didn't wig myself out a couple of times. I absolutely did. Uh, and I was lucky enough to have a wife and, and uh, a research partner at the time who would pull me back and go, now, Jeff, you know, <laughs> that was the cat or that was, you know, <laughs> the refrigerator kicking on or something like that because it will make you a little bit paranoid. Right. But after a while, you get past that. You realize that the experience itself is undeniable. It is um, much more in your face and you can – very, very easily differentiate uh, your own fear from the the legitimate experience. So I think part of what I felt driven to do was to tell people, you don't have to live with this if you don't want to. Uh, and and I think, by and large, I mean, judging from my email box sometimes of, of certain times of the year and certain years past um, – you know, I would. I was apparently listening to books somewhere uh, with a phone number, <laughs> and, and I didn't know anything about it. I'd get people calling me at ten, eleven, twelve o'clock at night, saying, "Yeah, I got your name out of this uh, thing. I talk about uh, an experience I had, and I, you know, I'd go on and tell them, um, you know, do you want it to stop?" And some of them didn't. Some of them said, "Well, if there's something to learn about all this, I'd certainly like to figure out what it is." I said, then, okay, you, you can deal with it. But those who couldn't, and the vast majority didn't want it to happen again, I would just tell them, involve yourself in something else. Get a hobby. You know, uh, Read a different book, not one on UFOs and aliens. Um, you know, Watch a movie. Uh, go outside and play with your kids. Take a drive in the country, and don't look up. Because uh, uh, you look up, you're expecting something. Um, you know that's um, uh, that's proved to be for several people the way to make it stop. I got tons of letters. I can't well, thank there, you enough. Blah blah blah. There, there was also um, there was for a while the the notion of and, and you experience this too, but of um, this sort of Christian thing of oh it's demons and if you just pray to Jesus they'll go away. Mm -hmm. um, so okay, so if 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 what we have is these beings, they interact with us, um, you know, they they have their own little agenda that they unfold in our lives. That's on one level. On another level, um, you know, the, maybe the fundies figured it out first, but they wrongly attributed it to Jesus. <laughs> if, you, if you ignore it, you know, it'll go away. If you... Um, you know, will it away? It'll it'll go away. Mm -hmm. um, has nothing to do with whatever your particular god is. It's just the act of doing that. Right. So, if they wanted you to know this, um, then what is what do you think comes next? I mean, essentially, you're outing their their to and fro. <laughs> you're you're well, outing their means to to come and go in here. So, if that's true, what's next for them? What what do you think? Well, uh, walk. <laughs> that was what was next uh, was was that little experiment that I think uh, if I had the balls to actually go through with it probably would yield something um, I think at that point is is uh, uh, meet them on your terms you mean yeah 
that if you have a hand in manifesting them or opening the door, then you also have a hand in how close they get. And, um, uh, you know, but, you know, (laughs) it's a difficult thing to do to have it so close up so many times and be so horribly, horribly afraid of it. And then to realize this and say, okay, uh, I'm going to picture, you know, I'm going to to focus on having a sighting of something that is di- a distance enough away that I'm not afraid of it. Uh, because there's always that little point in the back of your head. Am I opening the door again? Am I letting this, uh, um, am I going to be able to control it that easily? Um, will it abide by what I want? Um, I don't know. Uh, and that's the part that bothers me. Um, well, should it abide by what you want is a question. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, <laughs> I mean, I would think that if it truly wants to interact with someone and that someone says, okay, I get it, um, uh, or at least I get it f- for me in my, my life, in my perspective on it, if I get it for me, um, does that mean that, uh, that, that, it's ready for the next step and I'm not, or um, uh, am, I going to, am I going to be able to hold it back? Because that always seemed to be the bad part about the whole thing is, is uh, like I told you, my old research partners, you know, sh- shit doesn't stink till you stir it. Um, the question is, you know, can I be ready with the Glade can um, <laughs> uh, to keep it to a tolerable level? And that's what I don't know. That's what I worry about. Uh, never going to have a family show with that kind of potty mouth. I know. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, kids hear worse than that at school. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's kind of my hang up with it is I'm just, uh, uh, I think that I need to work on, again, being a less angry person, being a less um, fearful person. Um, half of me sometimes thinks that all the fear that I experienced with those, those, uh, the, those people was, um, meant to desensitize me to a certain degree. Um, because as a kid, I was a fearful kid. I was afraid of other kids. I was, um, I had a lot of friends and I did a lot of things and went a lot of places, but I always had this, uh, um, I don't know what I look at these days is kind of being an abnormal amount of fear of of other people and and certain places and I don't have any of that anymore after those experiences. I don't I don't there's nothing I really fear besides death and aliens. Um and uh, uh everything else is kind of like eh whatever. Um so uh I think I need to work on me from the aspect of regaining the innocence of um, curiosity and uh, and not looking upon these things as bad or evil or terrifying. And perhaps that will um, turn the experience over and let me see another side of it that maybe I've never had before. Um, but until such time as I can get it through my skull that um, what I've seen has been a product of me, has been a product of 
how I've wanted to perceive it because that's been my mindset. They're terrifying. They're ugly. They're scary. They're dirty. Um, uh, they make me do things I don't want to do. Uh, they come into my home uninvited. That kind, I mean, I need to be able to let that go, and that's been really hard to do. So that's like the best answer I can give for that is, is uh, uh, I don't know what the next step is, but I know there has to be one. Um, and I, I, uh, <clears throat> I was driving to work today. And a couple of times, which I I notice I never really do anymore, is that, you know, again, back in the day, the first thing I'd do when I'd walk outside would be to look up. Um, and I don't do that anymore. I don't look. And I noticed that when I was driving to work today, I was kind of, I was listening to Culture Contact on the pod and, and going <laughs> yes. on. Yes. And, um, and, and I just started, like, looking around. And um, I don't know how else to explain it other than back when I had a lot of experiences going on and I was having a lot of sightings of very strange stuff, I had a certain connected feeling in thought with looking for, for them. And I noticed this morning that I don't have that anymore. And I think that is me shutting that out, uh, uh, not not being willing to open myself to it again in, in that way. So I think it's going to take a bold move as in going out to a secluded area by myself alone, middle of the night, and, uh, and, and getting out of the car <laughs> and standing in the middle of a field and looking. And uh, I'd be reasonably sure if I did that for a certain amount of days that uh, th- that I would have something occur. Uh, whether or not it would be in that field or not, it's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think um, I think going out and looking is the way to do it. Um, my problem is is that I just don't have the stones for that right now. I'm just not at that place. Hmm. How do we get you stones? It's for the betterment of all humanity that you get stoned. <laughs> or maybe just stoned. Uh, well, ah, no. That's like a Gene Steinberg joke. I there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> now, I, I, think, um, I think that uh, I really need to um, – well, I think I need to start out by just reacclimating myself to the phenomena again. Um, which means cracking a book now and then and and uh, pondering the deeper questions that I have. Um, and I've got some really deep ones that I don't talk about, but um, that's kind of how it came about before. So will it come about again? I don't know. Um, but I think I, I like to think I have a better handle on myself interacting with these things than I did before. Before it was just, they're scary, I don't want them near me, I don't want to see things. Um, so I've, I've, I've kind of got this back and forth where I think, you know, you should just get into it one more time, uh, you know, and, and try to keep yourself a little bit more contained and open about stuff. Um, contained in the sense of, of not being a blithering idiot. 
uh, and not being so horribly afraid because nothing has happened to you. Uh, you're not dead. You're not injured. You're not dying. Um, so you went through all that with, well, I, I can't say without a scrape, but <laughs> you came through it okay. Uh, so really, what is there to fear, really? I mean, what are what am I afraid of when it comes to this? And it ultimately comes down to a lack of control. It always has been that. Um you know, I, I think I've mentioned on other shows before that I've got, you know, a head full of teeth that should be pulled, and um, uh, and I'd probably be a lot, um, a lot better off to do that. But the fact of the matter is, is they want to put me to sleep to do that, and I won't do that because I fear that loss of control. And um, you know, uh, sometimes I think to myself, you know, you should just you should just find somebody with DMT and smoke the hell out of it. And that'll cure you. <laughs> you know, there's your complete loss of control. Um, but I, you know, again, it's it's. Uh, uh, I think that is my biggest fear when it comes to this is the loss of control. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to learn to go with the flow. I need to learn to let go. Do you think, do you think that's why you talk about it publicly? Do you think that that's a form of control? <sighs> yeah. Um, yeah, probably. Um, I mean, it's therapeutic to me to be able to talk about some of this stuff and not have people, you know, look at you sideways. But um, I think it's that, and I think I'm also looking for somebody to tell me to tell me um, uh, a direction to go because I'm kind of at this spot where I just don't know what I'm doing with this stuff anymore. Um, and in a lot of ways, I mean, I, I know we just started this show. So this is what's this the, the third episode. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I hate to say that, I, you know, by and large, with a lot of the cases that I see come across my desk and a lot of pictures I get, I'm relatively, I'm, un- I'm uninterested in it. I mean, I'm just not as driven in the interest of it anymore like I used to be. I've got a stack of one, two, three, four, five uh, high eight tapes to go through. Um, hopefully before the weekend is gone, um, and I'm I'm real nonplussed about even looking at it. I mean, uh, so you're saying our vacation at Paratopia may may come to an end sooner? No, 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 later. not at all. I mean, it's just I think I'm going in a completely different direction from from you know analyzing data and and you know, re- reports and all of that. I've done that. It's like I'm done with that now. Um, I just don't feel the need to keep harping on that because I think that comes from a time where people are asking, "Is it real?" I'm I don't I'm tired of that. I, I'm burned out on that. Um, I'm tired of those arguments. You know. Yeah, I am too. But I I also almost wonder if if you you know what I'm not doing because I share similar sentiments is um, approaching this from all these various angles so that eventually. I'll get sick of it and sit with it my myself. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It's it's almost me taking my own advice of just shutting up. It's like, yeah. well, but but I'm not done screaming from all these different directions yet. Yeah. And then once I am, then I'll just sit with it and see what happens. I mean, the other option for me is to go to a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes. You know? Boy, there's a notebook full right there. Um I mean, my, that's my other thing is like, you know, I've got this control issue and obviously, 
you know, it's a problem. Uh, and maybe I should go talk to somebody about that and, and get some advice on how do you deal with that? You know, what do you do? Yeah, tell uh, them about the floating arm. I think they'll enjoy that. Yeah, they'll, they'll well, they'll lock me up. So, no, I'm not doing that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it had a flannel shirt on. Psychologists hate you for your freedoms. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, uh, I, I think it's all about working on yourself at this point to – um, to further this, um, and, and again, maybe that's another part of it too. Is you know, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> um, uh, in order well, to how, how far away is this? All of what we're talking about from a spiritual discussion. Uh, I mean, we're talking about paths. We're talking about. This, uh, you know, is sort of in control of what we need to do or informing what we need to do. We're talking about, you know, um, when my big supposed enlightened experience happened, it's a matter of uh, just giving up for the sake of giving up after having concentrated on a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's all the same. It's the same mechanism in play here. What the fuck are we talking about? Uh, you know, we're never going to have a family show if you use language like that. <laughs> um <laughs> The circle, she is complete. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I go back to, to again, um, what I used to say to people back in the old days, because, you know, when I was hosting chats on AOL, um, I don't care what UFO case the subject, that the, the, the chat was about that night, because we'd focus on one case or, or one place or a hotspot or whatever one aspect of ufology and invariably by, you know, if the chat started at eight by 10 o'clock, it was all about God. That's what we were talking about. Um, uh, Every chat always ended up there. And somebody asked me one time, um, uh, it was a good friend of mine, which I recently um, connected with an email again. He used to come to a lot of my chats way back when. And, um, uh, and, and he made mention, you know, he's like, why do you think that all this stuff always descends into like a religious tone about it? I said, because largely um, it's always going to be an article of faith because um, uh, we really don't have any evidence of this. We don't have any um, uh, we don't have any more than any religion has. Uh, so you've got that aspect of it. And then you've got, uh, uh, you know. A guy who I think, in my opinion, is, I mean, and despite uh, his detractors, I think Streber has um, gushed it out uh, for everybody to see uh, in how he's perceived this experience and how he feels about it. And you've got him saying uh, a guidance is there or a, a push or a direction is set out. Uh, you've got a, a scientist here tonight that has said, you know, that he feels he was set on some kind of path by virtue of an experience. Um, I think I think that's I think that speaks a lot to you know people who would turn it into an ideology, and it, and it's not that it's an experience, and you know, does it have similar spiritual connectivity? Yeah, yeah. I mean, why are we so like afraid to say that? <laughs> you know, 
well, simply because this stuff has been co-opted by religion and New Age and huh? belief systems and all of that. Yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, but there's a component to it like that, and we can't ignore that. You know, no more than we can ignore the high strangeness stuff and the way we've kind of, like, pushed to get that out there. Right. Um you know, well, I think also, it's because you know, the majority of people, at least um, in the West, have have this uh, belief system that that everything has to be equal and valid in in this. And um, so, if you're going to talk about this, the spiritual component of this, then the person who comes up to you and says reptilians in the garden of <laughs> you know is equally valid to to what we're talking about. You know what I mean? And right. that's not true. <laughs> it's. I mean, they're not equal uh, in in weight, in substance. Um, but just try telling them that. You know what I mean? And well, I I, I yeah. think that that's just a flaw of uh, where we are as a society um, in being so freaking wishy washy on. Because once you say like, oh, we don't know what's real. Um, I think the thing that's unacknowledged is that we're talking about that on a different level. And sort of the mundane, um, you know, delusions or uh, wish fulfillment and all that sort of stuff. There are different right. levels. There are different levels to that thinking in terms of, you know, what's reality. Um, and right. they're not all the same. They're not all on the same level. I guess what I'm saying. Right. So it, it's like it's like um, you know Ken Wilber does in his work, which is to take all of the wisdom traditions, all of the religions, psychology, philosophy, and science, and to um, well most especially with the religions and probably with psychology, to whittle away all of the crap and get to what is real or what is universal in them. Right. Um, and that's the process of transcending and including. You transcend the level below you, but you also include it in you, and you, you the thing that you include are the good parts that work. The rest of it you get rid of. So... In terms of uh, <sighs> shape shifting aliens and shape shifting aliens, lizards and all that and stuff. All, yeah, yeah. Let's get rid of that. <laughs> well, I mean, and I have to say this, and and you may kick my teeth in for this, but here's the thing: when you start hearing people talk like that, I think the one thing that I learned from being in the couples experiencers support groups that were out there was that no matter how bizarre or how stupid. Uh, some of these, some of these accounts sound. Um, are some of them complete shit? Absolutely. Some of them are just made up stories to, um, for whatever purpose that there is for someone to make something like that up. But I think that there are certain stories like that out there that just seem so absolutely absurd and ridiculous that that person that is genuinely what they perceived. The problem is, is that they're taking that at face value. They're taking that and they're saying, this is what it is, this is how it is, and that's just not the case. They haven't reached that point where they're questioning their perceptions. They are taking their perceptions at absolute face value. And again, keep, I keep reiterating the multi-level experience. Uh, right now, they're at that top surface level and they can't seem to get past that because they're content to hold on to that answer. Well, okay, then then let's can we then at least agree to get rid of um being married to our interpretations of what these things are so that we're not walking away saying, 
well, I saw a reptilian shapeshifter, therefore all that stuff about, you know, that I've read about reptilians in the Garden of, you know, Eden is true. Or, you know, these, these sure. aliens definitely made us in a test tube and they're God. Or, right. you know, yeah. any of that stuff. They're from the Pleiades, whatever it is. Right. Any yes. of the interpretive stuff, can we get rid of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, that we have to have, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have to have the fortitude to say, you know, that, that, it, it's. I think it's pretty well established at this point that your perceptions are greatly altered around these people, and uh, and that could be something that they're doing or a byproduct of being around them. Uh, I've always said they're very hard to be around, uh, but we need to start saying to these people, you know, you need to look deeper in this into this experience than what you're seeing on the surface because that's not it. You're not buying shoes on the mothership. You know, uh, uh, you know that, and I, I use that analogy because that was one person that I met that just believed that wholeheartedly. And 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 when I asked her, "Well, where are the shoes?" You know, I just got this blank stare. Like, oh, well, <laughs> you know, I think we have to be able, and people have to be able to let go of that kind of notion that. This is what it is. You have to look deeper into the phenomena and the experience itself to understand a little bit more about how it might work for you. Um, it's all very subjective in a lot of ways uh, until it's outwardly manifested. Um, and even then, it's subjective for some people. And even then, don't go to the books looking for any um, pat answers. No. No, don't. Just... Uh, um just look you know just look um yeah uh, i mean take yeah. it all in and what makes you know if anything makes most objective sense think about that you know not not hey what what backs up my belief system hey what appeals to me about this no right. no, no, no 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 what do you uh, in your heart of hearts i mean cut the crap with yourself <laughs> right yeah. and, and think does this really make sense for everybody right you know, because um, if it doesn't, then that's not going to be. <laughs> Who was it that said, "Don't give way to amazement. Just look at what we're showing you." <laughs> right? I mean, uh, it's it's. Uh, I think that that is what people should do: is just look at what's being shown, uh, look at what is presenting itself to you, and stop trying to make it fit into some uh, box. Even though that's the nature of a human being, is to try to make sense of it. Um, Take in your experience and 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 don't try to attribute anything to it. Just look at what it happens to show you, um, and then relate that as best you can, uh, honestly, with all of the even the really dumb stuff, even the stuff that is so bizarre that you don't ever want to talk about it. Um, I mean, I've talked to you about. Uh, 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 them trying to stick vibrating jelly in my mouth. I mean, <laughs> what the hell is that? You know, Delicious. do I believe? Do I necessarily believe that? No, no. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of stuff is symbolic. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, uh, it may make sense to me someday. Right now, it's not. But, um, and I do look a lot at a lot of it as, as symbolic. Uh, so, you know, I think people need to let go of their preconceived notions of all of this stuff, and we need to start over. I mean, we went grossly awry in this field. 
and uh, and it's time to like really step back and say, okay, let's forget all this all this uh, uh, spacemen trapping crap, and let's forget uh, you know the religious stuff as much as you can, and let's forget the um, uh, the scientific. It can't possibly be, therefore, it isn't. Let's just experience what's there and and relate it openly and honestly, and stop leaving out the shit that you think no one's going to believe. Because mm-hmm. the whole thing is unbelievable. Uh, I would like to have Seth Shostak or one of those guys, one of the big skeptic guys on here, maybe Doctor whatever the hell his name is, Doctor Science, Mister Science. Oh, Bill Nye. Yeah, Bill Nye, the Science Guy. That's his name. Yeah, yeah he uh, needs to bring his breaking powder and vinegar to if he's well, going to explain anything to us. Well, so. I would love to have him on here and just <laughs> one of those guys, any of those skeptics, and just say, "All right, what conversation can we have?" in an hour where by the end of it you will take me seriously. Hmm. Um, I would like to have the discussion. I mean, is it possible for us and, and Joe science um, to have that discussion or is Matt Loff the exception to the rule? This is what I'd like to discover. I think even we should with, get even with uh, skeptics, you know, I, like I, are, can, can we sway them in some way that we're actually just human beings trying to figure this stuff out and, and, and don't have an agenda and we're not loons. Is that possible? Uh, I don't know. Um, I think we should try to get Penn Jillette. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that... Uh, uh, I think, I mean, I, of course, he's absurdly critical of all of the paranormal stuff. But um, uh, I think that... I mean, I, <laughs> I keep going back to... Um, uh, conversations I had with Rust Estes like a long time ago, and there was a guy that was really into the UFO field, really into research. I, I I didn't know of a better guy researching at the time. Um, uh, really thorough, um, exposed a lot of people as complete bullshit artists. But um, you know, I asked him one time. I, I said, you know, do you think there is something really going on with this phenomenon or not? And he says, well, I think there is. I said, well, then explain to me what happened to me. And he said, have you ever seen the movie Phenomenon with John Travolta? And I said, no. And he says, well, that's what I think is going on. So I watched that movie and I thought, I've got a brain tumor. <laughs> that's what it is. you know. But I think what he was trying to say is that it's an internally generated thing. And I think that that would be the answer that a great many skeptic would say to you if they took you seriously. They would say it is some sort of internally generated phenomena that you are experiencing that is part of your human experience. And that you share with understand. friends and family? Uh, well, there's the tripping stone, isn't it? You know, I mean, that's, and that's the point where I think everything goes south is when everybody else sees this stuff too. Then again, they could say, you know, uh, uh, it, you're influencing them to see something. They're, you know, you're um, uh, by virtue of the discussion, you're you're influencing what they're seeing, and any little thing they see is going to be validating to what you claim you've seen. It goes on and on like that with these people, and I mean, you've got uh, um, you've got a guy like just for instance, James Oberg with NASA. He's a very intelligent man. Um, but when I wrote him many years ago, 
I wrote him after seeing him, I think it was on sightings or something like that, where they were talking to astronauts about what they had seen in space. And he, you know, basically explained away a lot of what they claimed to have seen and uh, and then uh, went back to the astronauts. I think Story Musgrave was the guy they were talking to. And I, I think that's who they were talking to. I'm not completely positive, but I'll use him as, you know, I'll say Astronaut X, you know. Um, Astronaut X said he saw this while in space and he couldn't explain it. He believes that there's life out there, even in the vacuum of space. And Oberg said, no, it's it's ice crystals or it's debris from the shuttle or it's this, that, and the other. And... I wrote him and I said, I'd like to know how it is that these people have been in space, have been in that environment, and have seen things that they can't explain, but yet you're able to explain them, and you've never been in space, and you've never been uh, orbiting the planet out there in this, and they have. How do you justify your opinion uh, to question or to doubt what they say they've seen? And... I, I kid you not. I wish I still had the email. I don't even have the same computer. That's four computers ago, or more. He said, "Well, astronaut X is an, is a uh, is known as an experiencer of of the uh, the uh, of space travel. In other words, to say he just is a little flighty was the way I took it. Uh, he doesn't really." Uh, uh, he's not super critical in the way he thinks about this stuff, and he didn't see what he thought he saw, and he's known as a real experiencer of these things, um, uh, and not not saying experiencer in the way we think of it, saying it in, in the aspect of being uh, 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 the way I took it, always always giving into the awe of it all, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took that as meaning not critical, and you know, and the letter I wrote him was was pretty nasty uh, initially and um, we exchanged a couple more emails after that but I I never really got a good answer Uh, and I think it's largely because these people don't have a good answer uh, for that I don't think that you can have a meaningful conversation with someone who already has their mind made up that we're all either mentally ill or didn't see what we thought we saw or we're just primed for something uh, to happen, and there, you know, we see a shooting star and immediately say, "Well, there's been a UFO crash in my area." Um, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's possible to have that kind of conversation with them because they're just not willing to entertain it in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that ultimately is the problem. I said on another message board to a, a, a young lady asking about skeptics, I said, "I personally would like to see." Uh, you know, they're always talking about, well, let's do a, a psychological work, workup on uh, UFO experiencers. I'd like to see one done on skeptics, especially those fundamentalist types uh, who are, you know, so rooted in it can't be possible because I've never seen it and I've never experienced it. So therefore, it can't possibly exist. Um, you know, what kind of. Uh, uh, I, I wrote on my site not long ago that I think these people are in some way trying to elevate their own um, intelligence past what they see us as being these, uh, you know, these doe-eyed believers. 
I think that they are just, uh, I think it does something for their own personal stature or ego to say, no, this is what you saw, this is how it is, and I'm explaining it to the world because you're just off in la-la land. Um, I mean, that involves a certain, I'm sure it involves a certain amount of uh, a feeling of, of superiority and power. Well, how is that different than what we're doing? Um, because I think that we're being intellectually honest. <laughs> I don't see how a man can sit on Larry King and tell a man who actually touched an unknown object with cryptic writing across it, who saw it lift up above the trees in front of his face and zoom away at an unheard of speed, that he was looking at a lighthouse. (laughs) That's not intellectually honest. That's a joke. I mean, give me a break. That's just, I mean, how foolish do you have to be to even suggest something like that? Uh, You know, I'm not here suggesting anything other than there is some kind of anomalous thing going on. We don't know what it is, um, but it's got an inherent reality to it because I think enough people around me have seen it, and that's been my experience. That's all I've got is my experience. I have no proof of anything. Um. And and truthfully, I'm not in this for uh, anybody else. Uh, I'm glad to share it all, uh, and if it helps somebody, that's great. But I'm not. I'm in this for me. I mean, I'm I make no bones about it. Um, you know, and if I wasn't learning things about it, I probably wouldn't be interested anymore. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm also in this for Jared, you. Just sorry to uh, interrupt, but is that a hatch? Where? Right behind us. You mean the hatch that says hatch in glowing safety orange paint? No, no, no. The one next to it. Hmm. No, I don't see anything next to it. You're a freaking idiot. Yes, that hatch. Well, what about it? That's our ticket out of here, dude. How do you know? The only one way to find out, right? Yeah, by opening this door and asking someone who works here when we leave. I missed that door. Now who's the... Holy shit! Jer! Jer! Dude, that was like the Wiley Coyote, what you just did. Dude, that was awesome. You've got to try it. Well, is there a way out? Um, I don't see one, but we'll worry about that later. Why would we worry about that later and not now? Just jump. Plus, there's a hatch. Don't be a pussy. Cat, jump. Yeah, I did that joke again. We're on vacation. Woohoo, yeah, dumb things. Woo. Now, come on. No, that's stupid. I'm not a frat boy. Woo! I'm not going to peer pressure because you made it sound like mindless yeah! fun. What? Jeff. What? I have an idea, but I'll need your help. This isn't seawater down here. It's... I think it's Kool-Aid. Jeff, dive in here and we'll drink our way out. What about the hatch? Forget the hatch, man. Come on. What's a hatch ever done for you, huh? That hatch go on vacation with you, huh? That hatch listen to you when you needed a friend to, 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 to wipe your ass when when you needed your ass wiped that time that you couldn't wipe it? Will it catch you when you fall, Jeff? Will it? No, you have a point. A very stupid, moronic point. Did I mention it's Kool-Aid? Is it spiked? 
I think so. Man, I do like beverages. <laughs> I regret it! Wow, Jeff. Looks like you really fell for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, less talking, more drinky. Will Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney ever figure anything out at all, ever, and get off this stinking island called Eratopia? Magic 8-Ball says... Doubtful. Yeah, it's doubtful. Dude, that was like the Wile E. Coyote, what you just did.